0: If you pay attention on the news, you probably are aware that we've had a couple of famous people in the past week or so who've passed away suddenly and much too soon. One was a, a famous dress designer, purse designer. Uh, the other was a, a celebrity chef. I mean, this is a guy who made his millions traveling to exotic destinations and eating interesting. Food. And both of these were shocking, because both of them came by suicide. It highlights a problem that's going on in our culture right now. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the suicide rate in America has gone up 30% in the last nine years. 30%. If that was the case with cancer or some other disease, we consider it a public health crisis, and it is. So here we are in this series called The Turning to Joy. I can't not acknowledge that. That there is within our culture a deep, deep despair. There's a hole in the heart of American society and it's coming through in what's happening to our people. And I need to say this, I need to say this carefully. Some people in this room have struggled with this before. Some people are probably struggling with this right now. If you are if you are having thoughts right now that maybe life isn't worth living, but one thing you need to understand is it gets better. It won't always be this way. And there is a God who loves you and who has plans for you don't shortchange those plans don't don't waste the opportunity to see what god has planned for the rest of your life i want to be clear there are people in this world in fact i'm sure many in this room who struggle with depression and depression is a real thing you can't just assume if i'm in fact just be a better christian i wouldn't be depressed some people need help, just the same way you wouldn't assume that going to church more often would take care of your uh, blocked arteries or your your lung cancer. you would get treatment for that, get treatment for the illness that that exists in your mind. I would also say, though, that a lot of suicide is not a result of mental illness. Sometimes it's it's simply a result of of trying to find happiness in the wrong places. I read a great article yesterday by Kristen Powers talked about these suicides. She said, look at both of these people who died. They had everything that American society says you need to be happy. And she said, this is a sign of the uselessness of envy. Don't look at someone else's life and say, if I only had what they had, then I would be happy. Because they had what you want, and they still weren't happy. When I was a kid, I thought the ultimate happiness would be to own a bakery. Because I love sweet stuff, I love cookies and I love I love donuts and I love uh, cinnamon rolls and, and pie and cake and so if someone ever gave me some of that stuff, I, I was immediately happy. But then it went away because once you eat it, it's gone and, and you're back to vegetables, right? But I thought if I owned my own donut shop, then my parents did not tell me, no, "No, no, you'll spoil your dinner." I'd say. I got my own shop. I have unfettered, unhindered access to all the good sweet stuff I want all the time, anytime I want it. And now that I'm an adult, you know, I still enjoy that stuff. I still love it when people give me sweets. It's, it's a tremendous source of happiness, and I'll probably tied to diabetes, too. But, it, but I realize I don't need to own the bakery. Me owning a donut shop would be a terrible idea. Number one, I'm, I would be the worst businessman. I'm just not wired that way. Number two, that stuff is good for a moment. It, 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 it's good to have it every once in a while, but you can't live on it. You can't live on donuts. You can't live on pie. I wish you could, but you can't. See, here's why I'm going with this. What's better than owning a donut shop is having the joy of it. Having the joy that only Christ gives. Scripture talks about in Galatians 5, Paul talks about how if you are a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you and that means you should have joy. That's one of the fruits of His Holy Spirit. His presence in your life should make you joyful and joy is something that is true regardless of your circumstances. Joy is something that is true even when life is against you. Even when you have sorrow in your life, you still have joy. Joy overcomes What like He did for Paul. You might say, well, I know plenty of Christians who are unhappy, and I say, yes, I do too, and I think the problem is, even though we're believers in Christ, even though we trust in Him and believe the right things, we're all still trying to buy the donut shop, do you know what I mean? We've got our own little thing and we think if I could just have this, then I would be happy. And maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a certain amount of money, maybe it's a certain amount of status, maybe it's a certain kind of success or a certain personal validation, but if we could just have that, that's our donut shop. And we're spending our lives, we're wasting our lives trying to buy that donut shop when the bread of life is free. Jesus says, Come and eat and you'll we'll never be hungry again. Well, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that right, right now I what my donuts. So I want to talk about joy today, as we did last week, last week we talked about how joy is found in investing in the lives of other people, and hopefully this week you took that challenge and you began praying for someone outside your family, praying for them to come to know Christ, for them to know Him better, grow in faith, keep that up, That, that should be a lifelong pursuit for you. But today we're going to talk about another avenue of joy, and that is this, here's your sermon in the sentence, you can't have joy until you're ready to die. You can't have joy until you are ready for the end of your life. And you might say, well, I don't get that because death isn't that big a deal to me. And I say, yes, it is. Death is the biggest joy stealer in your life. And you may say, but I don't think about death. Yes, you do. You may not think about it in those terms, but everyone lives in a constant fear of death. When you're young, you make stupid decisions. You make reckless decisions. You do. Crazy things. Why? Because you're in the back of your mind just this thought one of these days I'm going to be old, like, I don't know, 40. And and my life will be essentially over at that point. So I've got to have fun now. I've got to have that boyfriend, that girlfriend right now. I've got to have that experience, that excitement. You get into your middle years. You start to make difficult decisions, bad decisions. You start to realize my youth is gone. All this uh, youthful ambition is gone. And so uh, we get caught up in our personal appearance. We get caught up in overspending to get happiness. We make decisions that hurt people around us. As life goes on, we start to see loved ones pass away. First it's people of the generation of our grandparents and then our parents. And then we turn around and suddenly we're attending funerals of people who went to high school. We're looking in the mirror and saying, What happened? Who is this old person I'm staring at? We live in fear of death. We have this constant clock going off in our head, this time clock that says, Time is marching on. You need to enjoy it. You need to get what you can out of life now because life is too short. We're not ready to die so we don't know how to live. We're not ready to die so we don't know what life's all about. What does it mean to be ready? Here in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start with verse 12. Now, last week we saw how Paul greeted the Philippians He prayed for them, and there was a lot of that prayer for us to to understand and apply. Now, here's the part of the letter where he's supposed to talk about himself and give give them an update on how he's doing. Remember, Paul's in prison. You expect him to say, the food here is terrible. People here are mean. The guards are cruel. I don't understand the injustice I'm going through. Please pray for me. Listen instead to what Paul says. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So, what
1: is he saying there?
0: He's saying, I've come to find out it's actually a good thing that I'm in jail. Why? Because I'm chained to a Praetorian guard every day, and they change out at the end of every shift. So, I get to meet a different member of the Praetorian guard every day. These are these are elite soldiers in Rome's army. These are men who have shed a lot of blood. There is no way I would ever have a chance to talk to one of these guys about Jesus. But now, they're a captive audience. And you better believe, every time I meet one, I'm going to share Christ with him. And because of me, and because of this, the whole palace now has heard about Jesus. People who never would have attended a church before. He goes on and says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident to the in the Lord and dare all the Lord proclaim the gospel without fear. So he says, because I'm in jail, people are inspired, Christians are inspired to be more bold about sharing their faith. They're like, if Paul can suffer that way, then I should be ashamed not to share my faith out here when I'm free. He says in verse fifteen, "It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill." Now hold on—you don't mean to say there's envy and rivalry within Christian circles, do you? Yes, there actually is. People can be jerks and still be Christians. He says the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out priest? Christ. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincere. Supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul says there's people out there, fellow preachers who don't like me, who criticize me behind my back, and right now they're taking advantage of my absence to be able to preach to more people. He says, you know what? I'm glad. Because, either way, Christ has been preached, and I'm happy about that. Now, I can tell you something. You may be one of those few people who has an idealistic view of preachers that you would say, well, I'm sure every preacher would have that attitude. As a preacher, I can tell you, no. That is not my natural attitude. That's not any preacher's natural attitude or any person's natural attitude. Did I just contrast preachers and persons? Yes, I guess I did. My point is that something supernatural is happening give him this attitude of joy. That he can even rejoice that his enemies are having success preaching the gospel. He goes on. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or or by death, there was a very real possibility that Paul would be executed. He lived with that constant knowledge. This was a man who did not expect to live to be in the way. He says, and this is classic, verse 21, For me to live is Christ, to die is King. If I am to go on living in the body, this will be fruitful labor for me, yet what should I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Think about what Paul's saying here. He's saying, if I live or if I die, either way I live. There's no way I'm losing my joy, because if I die, I get to be with Jesus. If I live, I get to be with you, and either way I live. So what do we learn from Paul's attitude in this? What does this tell us about what it means to be ready to die? There's two things. One of them isn't gonna surprise you the other one might. The first one, you're ready to die when you know what will happen next. You're ready to die and you're able to have joy when you know what happens at the end of this life. There's all kinds of different views on the afterlife and the possibility of an afterlife. We live in a free country where you're free to believe. Whatever you want. Uh, I read a story about an atheist uh, who was a mother, and so she was committed to raising her children with the idea that there is nothing beyond what you can see. She had a little boy, seven years old, and he was upset because he had a young cousin who would die suddenly, unexpectedly, and she's trying to comfort him. And we as Christians, we have a special, particular way we're gonna comfort someone who's grieving, but she didn't have that in her arsenal so she was, she was trying her best to show him that life would still go on. She said, honey, it's okay because your cousin, now that he died, his body is in the ground and his body has, has sort of become part of the earth and next spring, all the great all the beautiful flowers are going to bloom and, and we're going to go out and it's going to be so beautiful and you'll be able to know that your, your cousin's body helped make that happen and it'll be almost as good as happening you. And then the little boy said, but mom, I don't want it to Speaking for all of us he said that. You know that in our world today, and in America today, a country that's becoming rapidly less and less religious, still 8 out of 10, 4 out of 5 Americans believe in an afterlife. Believe that this life cannot be all that there is. That's been universal throughout human history. Mankind just knows this life is not all there is. Now, there's disagreements on what comes next. What that afterlife looks like of course every major world religion has their own vision of what heaven looks like this fall i'm going to do a series called the truth about heaven and we're going to talk about what the bible says about the world to come 11 weeks we're going to be on that subject you may think i didn't know there was that much in the bible we could do 11 weeks but there is and you're going to enjoy hearing this it's going to be so much better than what you've heard about heaven before, which is basically a sort of consolation prize. It doesn't sound all that fun, but you know, it's better than the alternative. I mean, growing up, didn't you, didn't you sort of worry that heaven was like a never-ending church service? We can be real. Didn't you, didn't you worry that's what it was going to be like? I've got good new news for you. It's, it's better than that. We're going to get to that fall. What I want you to see here is Paul's assurance. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. See, Paul knows. He's done the calculus in his mind. He says, I don't know everything about the life to come, but I know that Jesus created all things so he can get anything he wants, he can do anything he wants. I know that he died for me, so he loves me enough to give me exactly what I need. He's not gonna hold anything back from me. I know that he's wise enough to know exactly what's best for me. So when I get there, it's not like I'm going to say, you know, Jesus, what this place needs is uh, he's going to have thought of everything before I even get there. So yeah, I know being with him is better by far, and I know I'm going to be there as soon as I die. And you might say, how can anybody know that? How can anybody have that kind of assurance? Is that arrogance? Well, it would be, except for this. Paul is not saying, I know I'm going to heaven when I die because I am smart enough to choose the right religion. That's what a lot of people think. A lot of people think, hey, the message of Christianity is if you believe in our religion, you go to heaven when you die. If you believe in this set of, of precepts, if you go through these religious rituals, if you try your best to obey these commands, then yeah, your name is on the clipboard, the angel will let you in. But that's not what the scriptures say. In Matthew 7, 22 through 23, Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me. There's got to be people who do the religious thing, but never give in. Paul is not saying, because I have chosen the right belief system, I know I'm assured of heaven. He's saying, because Jesus died for my sins and three days later rose again, I know he's going to take me home because he has invaded my soul on the road to Damascus and changed my life forever, I know I'm his and he's not gonna deny me on the day I die or he comes back, whichever comes first. So my question to you is, do you have that kind of assurance? Be honestly, if I told you, or better yet, if a doctor told you, I'm sorry, you've got 24 hours to live. You're going to die before the next, uh, the next time the sun comes up. If, if you knew you only had a short time to live, would your instant thought be despair? Or would there at least, at least be a trace of excitement? Honestly. Because if you don't feel at least a sense of excitement about the end of this life, if you don't have a certainty where you're headed, you need to get that right. We're going to give you the opportunity at the end of this Second thing, you're ready to die when you know what happens next, but also you're ready to die when you know why you're alive. See, if all being ready to die was about was knowing where you go next, that wouldn't bring you joy. Because then you'd just be impatient until heaven came. Then suicide would actually be a good idea, because you'd be like, "I, I need to get out of this world and into the next one, which is better. Paul doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say, wow, I really hope I get executed. He's saying, if it happens, it's victory for me. But there's something else for me here. He says in verse 22, there's fruitful labor. I haven't got. It. Notice, Paul's not... He's not saying, man, I don't want to die because there's all these things on my bucket list that I need to check off. I really want to see Paris. I really want to go to, you know, Euro Disney or whatever. He's not saying any of that. He's not saying, I, I really need to be able to walk my daughter down the aisle. I need to, I need to be there to see my grandkids graduate. That's not Paul's problem. Labor for me. I've invested in all these people And I want to be there to continue To invest in their lives Because every time I spend time with people Or every time I share the gospel with someone Or every time I disciple a believer Or every time I plan a church It brings joy to me So the longer I get to live on this earth The more I get to do that You know something, have you ever thought about this? There's one thing on this earth that you can do That you can't do in heaven And that is reach out to a hurting person In the name of Jesus Christ in the next life, there will be hurting people, there will be lost people, there will be people who don't know the name of Jesus. Paul says, "I need to take advantage of the opportunity I have while I have it." So, ask yourself the question: What has my life been about so far? If if I did die today, and all my friends were standing around in the casket in a few days, and just sort of making small talk and saying, well, he looks really good, I guess. They did okay. They did a good job. What else would they say? What would they say something your life? What would you want them to say? Alfred Nobel was the inventor of dynamite. He also sold explosives weaponry, and weaponry, made a fortune, this is in the 1800s, late 1800s. One day he woke up fairly late in life. He, Opened his newspaper and saw everybody's nightmare. Right, his own obituary in the paper. A newspaper had made the mistake. His brother had died. He was already in grief over that. But a French newspaper had made a mistake. Thought it was Alfred Nobel, the famous munitions dealer, and so they had printed an article about his life. And what really disturbed Alfred Nobel was that in the article they called him the Merchant of Death. They talked about how many thousands of people had died because of his inventions and because of the things he had sold. And it struck him, I don't, I don't want my life to be about that. I don't want that to be my legacy. Nobel had made so much money in these, in today's currency, he had the equivalent of $365 million. So he donated all of it to a foundation that would give out an award every year to people who benefit mankind in the areas of physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, and peace. The Nobel Prize. Because one man said, I need to change the legacy I'm living. I need to change the direction of my life and the impact I'm living on this world. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, what would it look like for me? Specifically, what would it look like if I had an Alfred Nobel moment? from this day forward I said, I'm going to change my legacy. My life has been about this, but it's going to be about this this instead. Because some of you are really young. Some of you, a a lot of you in this room are younger than me. You're in a stage of life where there's so much possibility. And if you're young, I I want you to know something. There's so many mistakes you can make. One of the biggest mistakes you can make is to devote your life to to buying that donut shop and saying, I've got to have this to be happy. So here's my challenge to you. I want you to to take a prayer and and make it your own. I I know we're Baptists. The Anglican Church was big into uh, the Book of Common Prayer and and pre written prayers, and and we as Baptists are kind of standoffish about that. I can pray my own prayers. Guys, guess what? There's a whole book of the Bible that's pre written prayers, so it's not like it's wrong. Okay? I'm giving you this as a suggestion. If you don't like it, use your own. But here's a prayer I'm challenging you to pray if you're a young adult or a teenager. Lord, wherever life takes me from this point forward, whether I'm married or single, raised kids or in childless and rich or struggle to get by, I will put Jesus first. By the way, you have cell phones, I know. Take it out and take a picture. Take a picture of that. I will take time every day to be in his presence. I will be an active part of the local church. I will find a way to help others in his name using the particular gifts and resources God has given me I challenge you I'm challenging you to pray Lord help me to stick close to you to not miss the opportunity to live out the life you have for me to not waste these years just waiting for heaven to roll around if you're in your middle years like me we need to be here can make the biggest mistakes of our lives. As we've kind of shed our youthful idealism, we recognize we're not going to change the world on our own anymore. We drift into, we sort of settle into this melancholy selfishness that says, life is unfair, I don't like what's happened, pretty soon I'm going to be old, my kids are going to be choosing my nursing home, so now I need to grab the happiness I can while i it's there to be grabbed. So many mistakes we can make, so much harm we can cause to ourselves and others. Midlife crisis, people make jokes about it, but it's real and it's not just for men, so be careful. And here's what I'm saying to you, here's what I'm challenging you to do. Ask yourself these two questions. Number one, what am I currently doing to strengthen my commitment to Jesus? Number two, what am I currently doing to bless others in his name? Give up, trying to buy the donut shop. This is about the breath of life and satisfying. Are you pursuing him? And for those of you who are in the last quarter of life, this church is blessed with a lot of people that have a ton of life experience. I mean, I've had people um, from outside ask me, how, how do you feel about having a church with so many people over you? And I say, it's great. It's fantastic because there's so many people in this church that have this wisdom, this experience in life that they can call upon. And, and in, in addition to that, because life experience doesn't necessarily bring wisdom, time with the Lord does, but in addition to that, a lot, of, a lot of you have more financial freedom than you've ever had. And I know some of you are struggling financially, and we want to help, but, but many of you are doing great, and, and I'm glad for you. Many of you are retired. God bless you. Hallelujah. I hope I get to retire someday if it's God's will. But that means you have more command of your free time than you've ever had since you were a kid. And shame of it is that at the very stage in life where you could make the biggest impact of the kingdom of God on this world, you told yourself, I've only got a few more years left, and I've been working hard all my life. Now it's going to be about me. These last few years, I'm going to do what makes me happy, whether that's golf or grandkids or travel or antiques or, or just sitting around watching your favorite TV show. None of those things are bad. Well, I don't like golf, but you know, it's not interesting if it works for you, right? Don't you, don't you see the donut shop and all of that? It's going to be about me. these last few years. I'm going to do all the things I've ever wanted to do. You know what Paul would say sitting in that prison cell? He would say, don't you understand? Your reward comes when you stand in the presence of Christ. That's when you rest. That's when you relax. Now is the time. Paul would say, run the race. Fight the good fight. Finish the course. Keep the faith. There is a course laid out for you that God has set apart for you. You can make a tremendous impact Finish that race strong. Oh, this church needs you. God's kingdom needs you. And I know you might say, well, I can't do the things I used to do. That's okay. You know your race is finished because you stop breathing. You stand in the presence of Christ. Until then, run with all your might. And I thank God when I see some people in this church in their 80s who are running hard and put me to shame. Young people, if you haven't seen that, you just need to open your eyes because it's going on all around you. So my challenge to you is if you're older, if you're in those, uh, in that last quarter of life, as far as you know, pray, Lord, how can I take full advantage of all that you've given me to accomplish your purpose for this stage of my life? Don't waste each of Here's what it all comes down to. I want you to imagine you're a little kid again. Remember when you were a little kid, you're in your biggest fear was there's a monster under the bed, or there's a monster outside. What if that were true? Imagine you're a little kid and there actually is a monster outside your house. And you can hear him snarling and crawling at the door and you know he wants to get you, he wants to eat you. Think about how terrifying that is for you as a child. Now when you're a little kid and your dad is the biggest, strongest, bravest person you know, imagine your dad gets up. He walks to that door and he says, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna get that monster. I'm gonna take him out because he's not gonna get you. He's not gonna get my child. And you don't want him to go because you're afraid that the monster's gonna eat your dad and you won't have a dad anymore. Your dad, listen, he's going anyway. Imagine him walking out that door and the door closing behind him. Now imagine you're in that house and you're waiting and you're listening, you're hoping to hear what happens. You're worried because it's taking longer than you thought. In fact, it takes so long, you start to think, I don't think Dad's coming back. And you're deeply sad. And not only are you sad, you're even more afraid, because if Dad's gone, that monster's really going to get you down. And all of a sudden, the doorknob starts to turn. You're staring at that doorknob, and the door swings open slowly, and there stands your dad. Little bruised, little bloody, with a smile on his face. And you know there's no way he'd be standing in that doorway if that monster wasn't dead. You know that he won. Think about the joy you feel as a little child to see your dad again. To not just know that your dad made it, but to know that you're free now. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore. See, a long time ago, there was this group of men and women who met a man who was unlike anything they'd ever met before. Strong, courageous, righteous, selfless. He loved them just as they were, but he called them to a better life, and they became convinced that he was more than just a man. He actually was their heavenly father come down in human flesh, and they devoted their lives to him. And one day he told them, there's a monster out there called sin and death, and it's coming for you, and I'm not going to let that happen. I'm going to go take that monster off. And his disciples didn't want him to do it, and they tried to talk him out of it, but he would not be dissuaded. And he walked through that door, and they watched him die. They watched the monster take him. And for three days, they were convinced not only was the light of their life gone, but the monster was still out there. And then three days later, they saw him again. Bruised, yes, scarred, absolutely, but risen and victorious. And that means there's no more sin or death that stands in way. That means we're free. Imagine the joy they felt. That's the joy that we want wanted to have. The joy that says death yes, has no power over us. Aging doesn't matter. Disease can't touch us. Illness, injury, nothing can take away the joy that Christ has given us. Because we know where we're having and we know why we're alive.